We have a banner outside the main doors here, and maybe you haven't looked at it for a while. It has a replica of this beautiful stained glass window and the cross, and it has a little motto on it. How many of you know what it says? You don't know, do you? Three words. Come, grow, serve. When Jesus walked on the earth, he aroused a lot of curiosity. Huge crowds came to follow him. The things he said were amazing. And of course, he healed people. And so obviously, huge crowds came together and they were curious. They were interested. And and out of the crowds, sometimes, some would say, hey, I want to go further with you. I want to move from being a part of the crowd to being one of your committed disciples. That's the way it ought to be. And, and uh, the pastors, before I came here, they got together and they thought about this and prayed and leaders and I suppose some of the deacons and so forth. They came up with this idea to move people through, just like Jesus did, from first you come and you see and you learn. And then you grow and you continue to grow. But then you serve. And so... If you say you're a follower of Jesus, and you're just part of a crowd of curiosity, now you're kind of kidding yourself. Because real followers of Jesus grow, and real followers of Jesus serve. And the one who said that very clearly, and ringingly, and convincingly, was the Lord Jesus himself. You know, if you go to any coffee shop in the Down River, on a Monday morning after the football season, you will hear dozens of experts at the game of football. Am I right? Everybody knows exactly. I mean, it's hard being a pastor sometimes, but I would not want to be a football coach. On the other hand, they do pay a lot of money for that job. But can you imagine? Everybody knows how to coach football. Everybody. Everybody's a critic. Very few players, but lots and lots of critics. Now, this week I was speaking up at Camp Barrichell. And it's a delight to speak up there. Speaking to young people. And got done last night about 10 o'clock, 10, 9.45 Drove back about 2 o'clock in the morning. We got home, played some loud music all the way home. Kids loved it. They were bright. They were wide awake the whole way. And, I, and they were complaining. They were like, wow, Dad, that was awful. And I said, well, you're home alive. You should just be happy. Anyway, uh, so if, if my kids, some of them are nodding off while I'm speaking today, please have mercy on them. I was speaking up there at Camp Barakel. I love Camp Barakel. It's a beautiful camp. And um, love going there. I've been going there 13 years. It's part of my life, part of my kids' lives. Uh, I've complained about Camp Barracle two times. Um, don't need to tell all about that, but I remember a few years ago, something happened I didn't like. I complained uh, among my family, and then a couple of days later I repented and tried to make it right. And, and um, I complained on Friday night. Uh, Lois called me. When Lois calls one of the family members, she has this really cool thing she does. She's like a southern woman. And so she always wants to know what you've eaten. So, you know, she, that's just, it's going to be a part of the conversation. Uh, so what have you eaten? And we have a little thing in our family. Wherever you've eaten, you know, I might say, well, today I had uh, a cheeseburger at McDonald's. And then she will say, wow, that must be nice. That's just what we do. So it doesn't matter where you eat, whether it's a big, fancy place or not. One of the family members says, what did you eat? And then you tell them, and then they go, wow, that must be nice. Well, I'm getting ready for chapel when she calls us. I'm speaking at about 8.30 at night, and, and it's about time for me to speak. And so I'm getting my last things together. I get ready for chapel, and she calls, and we're talking about the kids and so forth. And she says, what did you eat today? And I said, oh, my, the food was horrible. 
It was so horrible today. Ham salad sandwiches. I mean, that was so lame. I said, they, for what they charged, they really ought to give better food. It was just terrible. And I'm probably going to have to take the kids to McDonald's after chapel tonight. And then there was a little knock on the door, and a girl said, Your microphone is on. <laughs> yeah, I knew you'd enjoy that story. So then... I went out to speak like, well, how we doing tonight? And it was, it was not good. So I had to ask forgiveness. And I was telling Paul Gardner, who's the director of the camp, and a guy I just love. And we'll have him come and share with you guys someday. You'll love him. He's a great guy. And I said, Paul, I said, I got to ask your forgiveness because I, I criticized your camp. And I love this camp. And, and I said, and, and you're going to hear, <laughs> you're going to hear about it. So, I want you to know I criticized the food. It, it was bad, but I shouldn't, have, I shouldn't have said it. Now, my dad, he loves ham salad sandwiches. You know, he's from Ohio. In Ohio, they have these gas stations called Duke. Around the area, the locals call it the Duke. I'm going down to the Duke for lunch. That's right. People in Ohio eat lunch at the gas station. And, and at this particular one, they have these ham salad sandwiches. And my dad will drive out of his way to get a ham salad sandwich from the Duke. I, on the other hand, would drive out of my way to avoid a ham salad sandwich anywhere, just in case you ever invite me over for dinner, you might keep that in mind. But I shouldn't have complained. I said to Paul, I said, hey, Paul, I'm really, really sorry. I love this camp. And, and I, you, know, and, you know, when you think about it, there's a lot of people in the world that would love to have had, and I'd love to have given them my... <laughs> my ham salad sandwich and I said and he goes and he's a wonderful guy and he's very gospel oriented very gospel centered you know so he listens to me and he nods and he goes Ken I am loving this story I'm just en- I'm enjoying this story this story will be told many times here <laughs> I'm sure it will and then he said something kind of cool he said aren't you glad that in all of the years of Jesus life he never once ever complained about anything and it's his righteousness you're counting on and not yours and I call that was sweet so I fell victim to being a complainer this week instead of a player and it would be real easy to get stuck there in the crowd wouldn't it where you just basically are a critic you just pass judgment on stuff you come you taste you listen, you go home, and you think, wasn't bad today. I'll give it an 8.5 on a scale of 10. It was a little long. Other than that, it was okay. But it would be really easy to be curious about Jesus. It would be really easy to have a kind of a magic idea, like, I want to get Jesus on my team so he makes me successful at what I want to do, and he's all powerful and everything, so I want him to endorse my agenda and be on my team. That would be kind of a distortion, wouldn't it, of discipleship. That wouldn't be following Jesus. That would be asking (laughs) Jesus to follow you. Now, as we approach the communion table, we are going to look in Matthew chapter 8 as we preach through the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 8, there is a fascinating little set of questions. Two guys come to Jesus. One makes a statement, one asks a question, and you really you don't get the whole story on either of these guys. The Bible doesn't tell us what happens to them. Kind of leaves us hanging, but it gives the statement one makes and then this powerful response of Jesus and then this question another one and then the powerful response of Jesus and they're kind of enigmatic. They're kind of mysterious. They're like, "Hmm, they make you think Jesus was so that way." And so he would kind of lay these questions on people's soul, give them a little twist and say, talk to you later. 
And that's probably good for us. To not just have everything all figured out. In other words, here's what I'm trying to say. Where are you on this whole thing? Come, grow, serve. Where are you? Quick, don't answer too quickly. Where really are you? Are you just like a part of the crowd? Kind of curious, interested? You come, show up. Are are you growing? Have you really, I mean, how long, how long has it been since God confronted you about something and you repented and changed? And you're really growing. It's like, what's the next thing, God? I want to grow. And how many of you would say, I'm, I'm, I'm serving, I'm giving, I'm living for Christ, I'm devoted, I'm in, I'm serious about this. I am a devoted follower of Jesus Christ, and my heart is devoted to what Jesus' heart is devoted to, and I'm committed to the task that Jesus has in this world, and I care about what Jesus cares about in this world. Or are you just kind of like, well, I come, I listen, I pass judgment, I'm kind of critical, I go home, you know? Not being mean to you. Don't misunderstand me. I love you. You know that. I just think we all need to hear from Jesus today. All of us need to hear it. When I read this, I'm like, oh, this is going to be a hard one. It's kind of a cost of discipleship passage. So let's read this passage in Matthew chapter 8. And now we're in verses 18 through 22 in our study of the gospel of Matthew, Matthew's gospel. And when Jesus saw a great multitude, saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. He's in Capernaum. He's going across the Sea of Galilee into the uh, Decapolis cities. Verse 19. Then a certain scribe came to him, said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Verse 21, another of his disciples says to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. More often than we usually admit it, Jesus says things that are really confusing. More often than we like to admit it, Jesus asks questions that you cannot quickly answer. And here we just have Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, giving us a little insight into these two guys, their questions, and things that Jesus said. We can't know a lot about this. We don't even know if either of these guys followed Jesus. We, we kind of assume from their silence that they didn't. But we can't say that for sure. They may have gone on to follow Christ. Matthew and the Holy Spirit didn't think that was the important thing. But they gave us these responses that Jesus gave, and I think they're probably like going to be good for us. Kind of put a little spiritual burr under our saddle this week and make us kind of think, you really, you're a disciple? Are you really? No, are you really a follower of Jesus Christ? Oh, yes, I'm a follower. Really? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Now, that's the first guy. Jesus is in a crowd. He wants to get away from the crowd. Often Jesus loves to dive into the crowd. He did that when we were talking about this last. He dove into the crowd. He healed people. And it was pretty amazing, wasn't it? But now he has this kind of a rhythm in his ministry. Now he's going to go away. He's going to get away from the crowd for a while. In his humanity, he's going to rest. He's going to reflect. He's going to worship. And then he's going to jump back into ministry. When he gets back into ministry, it's going to be on the other side of the Sea of Galilee in the Decapolis cities, which are Hellenistic, which are godless, which he's going to actually get in 
a storm on the way over, and he's going to confront demons when he gets there. So he's probably aware of this, and he's preparing himself. And when, the disciples, when people come along and say, hey, can I go with you? He's kind of like, I'm not sure you know what you're asking. Because we're going to get into a big storm on the Sea of Galilee, and they say those are real humdingers of storms. And there's a guy over there that we, we call him the maniac of Gadara, and he's a piece of work. And this is not going to be for little boys. This is for serious disciples. Jesus called. So here's the scribe who himself is a teacher. And he says something. It really is beautiful. I will follow you wherever you go. That's a beautiful thing to say to Jesus. You should say that to him. Jesus, I've seen what you've done. I see how you touch people. I see how you heal people. I see how you forgive people. I just want to be around you. And wherever you go, I want to go. I want to be with you. That was a good thing to say. But Jesus knew his heart. And he just said to him, almost like very indirectly, he didn't say yes. He didn't say no. He just said, you need to understand, I don't have hotel reservations tonight with the pool and room service. I don't have a place to lay my head. And the guy's almost like, you almost kind of hear the guy going, oh, I see. Well, I just saw the healing and I thought that was cool. Maybe another day. It's kind of my guess. The guy walks. I didn't know this was going to involve hardship. Jesus at this point calls himself for the first time in the gospel the son of man. Jesus continuously referred to himself. Others did not refer to him as the son of man. But continuously Jesus referred to himself as the son of man. And you should read the commentaries on this. It's pretty cool. I mean, really smarter people than I have gone all over the literature, biblical and extra-biblical, about what does this mean. But here are some conclusions that we can be fairly safe in saying. Why would Jesus call himself Son of Man? This is something that services. He's pointing, certainly anybody who hears this who's familiar with the Old Testament would think Book of Daniel. And all the stuff later on, Matthew's going to refer to the Book of Daniel. He's going to directly quote a passage about the Son of Man coming in clouds of glory. And so it's no doubt Jesus calling himself Son of Man to inform people would be saying, he's... Very special, to say the least. It's, a, it's pointing to his divinity. It's pointing to that he's the Messiah. But then it's also talking about his humanity. But then there's something more here, and this goes beautifully with what Matthew's doing with this book. He's aiming the book at Jewish people so that they will understand that Jewish people are not chosen to be God's people just so they can hoard, selfishly hoard, all of God's prerogatives for them. Jewish people have been chosen to be God's people so that they can be a blessing to the world. And Son of Man is a, is a designation that Jesus loves to use of himself because he's saying, don't claim me as the exclusive property of Jewish people. I am the Son of Man. Beautiful. There's a lot more to it. That's just a bit. That's just a taste. We'll, we'll come across it again. We'll teach about it more. The first guy was a scribe, and this was the answer that Jesus gave to him. We don't have anywhere to lay our head. The second guy was called another disciple. In verses 21 and 22, he says, let me first bury my father. There's a pretty general agreement among scholars like Kenneth Bailey, who really understands Middle Eastern culture, that the guy's dad hadn't really died yet. Otherwise, he wouldn't be out in public like that because of the rituals that would be. In other words, what he was not saying is my body, my, my dad's body needs to be buried right now. What he was really probably saying was, 
you know, I, I'm, I'm going to follow you, but I want to attend to my aging father first, and then someday when he dies and we take care of all that, then I'll follow you. Jesus saw right through his lame excuse, and he said in a really poetic and sharp way, let the dead bury their own dead. This would probably have been one of the times when what Jesus said might have gone over the heads of a lot of people. Let the dead bury their dead. Let the people who are dying spiritually take care of the people who are dying physically. It's just interesting here. There are a couple of lessons. They're simple, but they were true then, and I think they're still true now. Can I just suggest? The first lesson is this, what Jesus was saying when he said, I don't have a place to lay my head, is this. If you're going to follow me, you want to prepare for hardship, for difficulty, for suffering, for sacrifice, it's not necessarily going to be easy to follow me. You need to understand that. And it wouldn't be. I mean, he got kicked out of everywhere and then tortured and crucified. Publicly humiliated. I have a nephew named Jesse. He and his wife, Rebecca, are with a mission organization called YWAM, a bunch of crazy people. <laughs> he went with this mission organization. He, he, it's, it's like a charismatic mission organization. He's raised in a, with a Baptist pastor, so I don't know how that happened, but off he goes with this charismatic group to Tijuana, Mexico. Dangerous place. Dangerous place. Teaching the Bible and opening up a Bible teaching place in Tijuana, Mexico. And my dad... When I was a boy, I distinctly remember my dad, his hands trembling, tears on his face, saying this. I would rather that my children spill their blood on foreign soil following Christ than to live a full life in the United States outside of God's will. But when my dad talked about my nephew, he said, he's crazy. (laughs) He's crazy. He could get killed. Jesus doesn't want us to follow him just because we get the keys to the country club. He doesn't want us to follow him like he's a little rabbit's foot in our pocket. He's going to make my business more successful or my kids more obedient or my wife more loyal. That's not it. He says, we've got a business to do and it's going to be a little dangerous. There are going to be storms and demons... But it's going to be a ride, so come on, let's go. What's the pay? I don't know. We'll see what happens. We'll see. It might be ham, ham salad. I don't know. <laughs> following Jesus is not just a magic way of getting more of what you want. Following Jesus is finding deep, eternal satisfaction in doing God's will, what he wants done in the world. David Platt has written this very antagonistic book about this. I think it's called Radical. Uh, don't, it's not bedtime reading. Uh, here, here's one of the things that he says, and he kind of does what Jesus does. He kind of leaves some open-ended questions. He, he says, we tend to rationalize the way Jesus calls to radical discipleship. We're starting to redefine Christianity. We're giving in to the dangerous temptation to take the Jesus of the Bible and twist him into a version of, the Jesus, of Jesus that we're more comfortable with. 
A nice middle-class American Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't mind materialism and who would never call us to give away everything that we have. A Jesus who would not expect us to forsake our closest relationships so that he receives all of our affection. A Jesus who is fine with nominal devotion and does not infringe upon our comforts because, after all, he loves us and he loves us just the way we are. A Jesus who would want us to be balanced and he'd want us to avoid dangerous extremes and who, for that matter, wants us to avoid danger altogether. A Jesus who brings us comforts and prosperity as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. But do you and I realize what we are doing at this point, Platt says, we are molding Jesus into our own image. And he is beginning to look a lot like us because that when we gather in our church buildings and we sing and we lift up our hands in worship, we may not actually be worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. Instead, we may be worshiping ourselves. David Platt tweeted this the other day. (laughs) The cost of discipleship is great. But the cost of non-discipleship is even greater. If Jesus says, follow me, it's going to be rough. And we go, I don't want rough, so I'm not going to follow you. He says, oh, if you don't follow me, it's going to be a lot worse. It's going to be a lot worse. Either life is hard and you're following Jesus, or life is hard and you're, you're not with him. I mean, think about it. It just kind of makes sense. Follow him. So the second, so the first lesson, if you will, is following Jesus may involve hardship. That's what Jesus wants would-be followers to know. And the second thing is really interesting, and that is Jesus can see through your excuses and mine. And we're good at giving excuses, you know. Rationalization is why we don't give or do or whatever. I'm not going to do this because of that. Jesus, you, you know, you can tell the pastor. That's what we do. Pastors are like professional nice guys. Right? What are you laughing about? That's true, isn't it? Right? Like, tell the pastor, the pastor's going to go, oh, okay. I understand. You're going to play soccer. Go ahead. But Jesus, he can see through it. Sometimes he isn't nice. He'd call you out on it. Really? You going to give your life to that little ball? And Is, is there any eternal thing to that? No, there may be. I, you know, I'm not saying... Jesus would call you out. In other words, if you came to me and you said, well, I'm going to play soccer, I, I'm not gonna, I don't know your heart. He does. So if, he, if you go, I'm going to play soccer, or whatever else it is, you know, how are you going like, to waste your life or squander your life or spend your life on something that's empty or, or, or not significant or, or not eternal, uh, he's going to call you on it. He's going he's to see through your excuses. So can I ask you today, what's your excuse for not serving him? What's your excuse for not serving him? What's your excuse for not following him? What's your excuse going to seem like when you look him in the face and you tell him? Because what this passage is saying is that when you really understand who Jesus is, he's not just another rabbi. He breaks all the rules. He demands things of people and he has every right to do it. Salvation is free to us. And he expects our discipleship to be costly. I heard once of a man who took his son hunting, just a young, young teenage boy. The boy said, Dad, I, I love to go hunting. And the dad said, Dad, it'd be great. We'll go together. I'll teach you. And so they went out to hunt together, the dad and his son. And then the whole hunt took a tragic turn when the boy accidentally shot his own dad. 
And the dad said to the boy, go and get help, knowing that it would be too late, but he didn't want his son to watch him die. So when his boy returned, there was a note, and the note was scratched with a stick on paper in his own blood. It said, son, I love you, and I forgive you. When our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, died on Calvary, he wrote us a love note in his own blood. I love you. I forgive you. And when we read that note, and we understand who he is, how can we say to him, thanks a lot, but I'm not going to follow you? How silly. How foolish. How ignorant. Can I ask you this? What are you doing that's more important than radically following Jesus Christ? What are you doing that's more significant? What are you doing that's more eternal than radically following Jesus Christ? What are you doing that's more satisfying than radically following Jesus Christ? If our sister can lay in the hospital for weeks with a replacement heart, a series of things wrong with her, and she can still turn her hospital bed into a pulpit to witness to people. What can you do with your strong arms and your strong legs and your good heart and your youth and the knowledge that you have of who Jesus is? It would be good for us to think about that while we participate in the Lord's Supper. Our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the sacrifice of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We get all busy and selfish and critical and self-centered and we forget about the dying world around us and how you want to get to them, the people that are oppressed by demons, the people that are oppressed by sickness, the people that don't yet understand your redeeming love and grace and and we want you to give us things and make us comfortable and we see in your word that's not really appropriate so while we take of the elements of communion today i pray that your spirit would whisper into our hearts and that we would obey you in jesus name amen you have to forgive me my mind works kind of funny this is probably the first time i've ever done this but while we were putting those elements away, I thought of a book recommendation I wanted to give to you. I read this book, uh, The Bookends of, of uh, the Christian Life. And um, short version is, The Bookends of the Christian Life are the righteousness of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we think of these uh, elements of communion, that's what should leap into our hearts. The righteousness of Jesus Christ and that is the only way that we could stand before a holy, all-consuming God. And the power of the Holy Spirit, which is the only way that we can do what he demands of us. And so we think of those things as we uh, come to the communion table, keeping in mind that we want to move away from being in the crowd of curious people into the inner circle of devoted committed, sacrificial followers of Jesus Christ.
The same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Been away for a while. Give me a moment more. Let me read you something I wrote a few years ago. I was just finishing up some yard work when I saw a Hispanic man drive up in a pickup truck. A young man was with him. Later I found out it was his son. I smiled and waved, and he smiled and waved back. They unloaded some equipment, and they went to work. I finished packing my things away. They'd not been there five minutes when suddenly there was a loud bang. The young, the young man began to scream over the noise of the power equipment. Father! Father! My father's hurt. Help me. Help me. His English was broken. I could tell he was having difficulty making himself understood. I ran over to help him. His father was on the ground. He had a huge gash on his leg. Blood was everywhere. I pulled out my cell phone to call 911. Blood splattered on the face of the cell phone, and I misdialed twice because I couldn't read the numbers. The old man's leg was bleeding badly. His son was trying to tie a tourniquet around his leg. I couldn't hear the voice on the other end of the line. I ran out into the street to get away from the noise of the equipment. I tried to be calm so that I wouldn't have to repeat myself and waste more time. The 911 operator was speaking in a casual, unhurried manner, asking for details that didn't seem important. I started to shout, please get an ambulance here right away. A man is bleeding to death. I ran toward the end of the block to read the road sign so that I could tell them the name of the street. And then I ran back to tell them the house number. It was a beautiful autumn day, and there was a little church bazaar being conducted on the street. A woman called to me, would you like some roasted chestnuts or some pumpkin pie? I have fresh coffee and an apple cider, too. She must have thought that I was rude. I couldn't even respond. The very idea of stopping to explain to her was repulsive to me. Less than a block away, a young man was struggling to keep his father from bleeding to death. In the distance, I could hear a siren coming closer. I stood back while they quickly loaded him up and drove away. I stood and listened to the music drifting over from the church. There was a murmur of people's voices and the smell of food and the sound of the wind blowing through leaves, the ones that were still clinging to the trees. My heart wouldn't stop pounding. I walked back through the garage into the backyard and the equipment lay silent on the ground. The blood was everywhere, parts of the man's clothing torn away in the desperate struggle to save his life. And his old red Ford pickup truck sat facing the alley with the tailgate down. My head was swimming. I got in the car and I rushed to the hospital. I parked my car and I hurried across the parking lot into ER as the sun slipped from sight. When I got into the emergency room... They showed me into the room where the man was being treated. The young man sat beside his father with his head in his hands, sobbing, deep, soul-wracking sobs. He's gone. My father is gone. He's gone. We didn't get here in time. It's too late. He's gone. I put my arm around his shoulders and I cried with him. In that moment, nothing else in the world seemed to matter at all. Everything else seemed so trivial, so foolish, compared to the tragedy of the violent death that I had just witnessed. 
I sat in my car for a long time, unable to drive away, wondering if I'd, if I'd been faster or if I'd known first aid better, if the man would still be alive, the boy would still have a father. I started in my car. The cell phone rang. Yeah, I'll be right home. Yeah, I'm sorry. I've been delayed. No, go ahead. Have supper without me. I'm not hungry. I'm not feeling well. I love you. I'll see you soon. When I closed the phone, I could see my hand and the phone were covered with the blood of the man I tried to save. I drove back past the little church. It was so quaint. People were putting things away. Light was shining out into the street. The people there were completely unaware of the tragedy that had unfolded a little over a block away during their church bazaar. People are dying. They're dying right within sight of our churches. They're dying all around us while we trifle away with our lives. In my mind, I could see the face of a pastor friend telling the story of Charles Simeon, pointing to the portrait of Henry Martin, a missionary to India, who had only a few brief years of service before his death, saying, don't trifle, my pastor friend said, don't trifle. And then mercifully, my cell phone began to ring. I used my cell phone for an alarm clock. To my relief, the whole tragedy had been born and lived and died in my dream. My alarm rescued me from the nightmare, but the phrase stayed in my mind as I woke up. Don't trifle. Don't trifle. No kidding, that's the dream I had. It was exactly like that. I got up, I wrote it down as fast as I could. J.C. Ryle tells this story. At Cambridge the other day, I saw a picture of Henry Martin bequeathed by Mr. Simeon, Charles Simeon, to the public library. A friend informed me that the picture used to hang in Mr. Simeon's room and that when he was disposed to trifle in the work of ministry, he used to stand before it and say, it seems to say to me, Charles Simeon, don't trifle. Don't trifle. Charles Simeon, remember whose you are. Remember who you serve. And then the worthy man, in his own strange way, Ryle said, would bow respectfully and say, I will not trifle. I will not trifle. I will not forget. Horatius Bonar said, "'Tis not for man to trifle.'" Life is brief and sin is here. Our age is but the falling of a leaf, a dropping tear. We have not time to sport away the hours. All must be earnest in a world like ours. Can you sing with me number 168 in closing? 168 verses 1 and 2 and 4. 1 and 2 and 4. Of when I survey. Let's stand together, please.